0: open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, and we are in a series of messages entitled, The Cross from Christ's Perspective, The Cross from Christ's Perspective. We haven't lost our way. I know that we were talking about looking at the cross through the description of the cup, the cup to which Jesus drunk. You remember that He brought His disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane, and He prayed, Father, if it be Your will, let this cup pass from Me. He asked His disciples, are you able to drink from the cup that I am about to drink? In the Gospel of John, He said, um, shall I not drink the cup that My Father has given Me to drink? Jesus considered the cross as, as though there is a cup of suffering that he must drink every drop in order to purchase and provide for our salvation. Now, w- we've said that, that when Jesus told his disciples that where I am going in other words, this cup that I'm about to drink, you are not able to, to drink. It wasn't that where I'm going, you are not able to go. It's not that there was a lack of permission. Jesus wasn't simply saying, no, 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 I'm not giving you permission to go with me. If I gave you permission, you would be welcome to come. Jesus was saying that where I am going, you would not want to go with him and you would not want to be there. Uh, as I was listening to some messages and reflecting uh, on this and, and, and studying, it would be as if there were a runner. One of, the, uh, one of my professors who really helped me understand these things uh, way back when was a runner. And when his children were little and he was going to go out for a long run, like a 20 mile run, getting ready for a marathon, his children would come to him and they would say, Daddy, can I go with you? And he would say, "Uh, where I am going, you are not able to go. In other words, he wasn't saying, I'm not giving you permission. You can go with me if I would just give you permission. He's saying to his young children, you don't have the capacity to go with me on this long run today. In the same way, Jesus is saying that to his disciples. He's saying, and he says it to all of us. In fact, he says it even to us here today. Where I am going, you are not able to go. There are three ingredients or three elements, three aspects, whatever keyword you want to use to the cup that made the cross of Christ unique and different from any other cup that anyone has ever had to drink. Now, there is a sense in which all of us have a cup to drink. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. He says, in this world you will have sorrow. In this world you will have pain uh, and grief. But God is not going to place on us more than what we can handle, even with His capacity, uh, even with him being uh, with us. Now I want to be clear, God will place on you more than you can ha- more than what you can handle. I know we hear these little cliches God don't ever give you more than what you can handle. Yes He will, yes He will. yes, He does, mm-hmm. but He doesn't give place on you more than what He can handle with you, through you, and carrying you through along the way. In Isaiah chapter 52, what we've seen is, is we've seen that that part of the cup has to do with what happened to Christ on the cross. Remember, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who were crucified throughout the history of time. And yet, there's something that makes Christ's cup unique and different from every other cup. In fact, what happens here is we we read in Isaiah chapter 52, going into Isaiah 53, certainly a verse that relates to the uh, crucifixion of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14, we have already read that his appearance was marred more than any man, and His form more than the sons of man. And we have said in our past studies that when Jesus was hung on the cross, He looked like a man. Bloody? Yes. Beaten? Yes. Tired? Yes. Right? He He was physically... So weak, he couldn't even carry his own cross to the cross. They had to get Simeon to help him finish carrying it uh, along the way. When they nailed him to the cross and they stood him in the air, suspended between heaven and earth, he looked like every other person who has been uh, crucified He looked like a man. And every other person that died the death of crucifixion, when they came down from the cross, they still looked like a person. They would still be recognizable. Their mamas, if no one else, would would recognize them. They would still have the shape and the form of a man or a woman, if that were the case, who was crucified. But not so with Jesus. There on the cross, His form was so transformed that it was beyond human recognition. If they took Him from the cross, and they did, and you were to come across, according to the language of Isaiah 52, you would not even recognize that it was a human being. You wouldn't know what it was. Because his form was so marred beyond human recognition. And so we're looking at what caused that. What caused Christ's form to be marred beyond human recognition? And it's all in the cup with which he drank. We've already said that the first aspect to the cup was the fact that Satan... And the demons and the forces of hell had, according to Luke chapter twenty-two, verse fifty-three, had been given a designated time, an hour of the power of the darkness. Luke fifty-two twenty-three, Luke twenty-two fifty-three says for them to come and to unleash and unload on christ everything they possibly could to get him to quit to get him to give up to get him to call for help to get him to come down for the cross you and i have no clue what that's like i want to say something here and some of you may gristle at it just a little bit but but that's okay that's okay The fact of the matter is, is the devil is real and he has demons everywhere. But the reality is, and though you say the devil made me do it and the devil this and the devil that, the chances are that you've never had a personal encounter with the devil himself. Now, why is that? Because the devil is one person in one place at one time. He is not omnipresent he, like God is. He is not, um, he's not everywhere all at the same time. And I don't want to you know, humiliate any of us or, or but might need to deflate our egos a little bit. There are a whole lot of other issues and people and things that the devil would be concerned about and contend with than probably you and I. But he does have his demons... In fact, we saw that a third of them fell with him. And we don't know how many that third is because the Bible says that there were myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands we saw in the book of Daniel. And, but if we just take the minimum of what Jesus said, could I not call 72,000 angels to come and rescue me? Then that means 36,000 demons at a minimum could unleash and unload on Christ everything that they have to muster and then their hour was done what ended that hour is what we're going to look at today What ended the hour of the power of the darkness? And we started last week understanding this from looking at the views of Christ on the cross. The views of Christ on the cross, there are several views, and we're going to see those uh, today uh, in this place. There are several views that we need to uh, look at and we need to uh, consider. hello Andrea. come on in so good to see you how are you Mm -hmm. good good come in come in how are you doing good what's your name Venus. venus i've met you before i met you at the mall didn't i yeah good come on in you're welcome to come on in and have a seat. We've already been doing some singing and now we're opening God's Word. Everybody, this is one of my students. Are we so happy to have her? This is Andrea and her daughter Venus. Welcome. Thank you. <coughs> Last Sunday, we were talking about um, us and how full we were last Sunday. And uh, she sent me an inbox message. What's the address? And I said, the address to what? She says, the church. I want to (laughs) come. And so uh, I'm so happy uh, that you are here today. It makes my heart glad that's for sure we're studying in the bible we're at the point we've done some singing already and we're studying in the bible um so so jesus is on the cross and the demons um uh come and unleash and unload and last week we considered absolutely turning there we're in matthew chapter 27 okay matthew chapter 27 We, last week, we saw in Matthew chapter 27, and that's in the New Testament, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27, we saw a connection to Psalm 23. Remember that? 22. Psalm 22. Jesus, when he's on the cross, there's six hours on the cross, three hours in the light. Three hours in the dark. And then he cries out. He screams, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he ties forever the experience of the cross to Psalm chapter 22, because in Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, the psalmist dealing with his own situation that he was dealing with, but prophetically speaking, of what would happen to Christ on the cross says in Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we see here is we see, for example, in Isaiah chapter 53, we see that we are looking at the cross of Christ. We see him stricken. We see him smitten of God, Isaiah chapter 53 says. So in Isaiah 53, we are looking at Christ upon the cross, in psalm 22 Christ Jesus is looking at himself on the cross. In fact, it's it's Matthew 27 ties in Psalm 22 four different times. It's un there's an unmistakable question from Matthew 27 to Psalm 22. Matthew 27 verse 35 says that they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. That's in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, 18. Verse 39, those who were passing and hurling abuse at him were wagging their heads. That's Psalm 22, verse 7. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. Psalm 22, verse 8. And of course, as we already said, verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22, one. So Matthew 27 forever ties Psalm 22 into the details of the cross. And when we went to Psalm 22, we saw the first view that Jesus views himself from the cross. And we saw the things that he said there. For example, in verse 14... He says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. He says a little bit later, verse 16, They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They looked. They stared at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. This is the view of Jesus on the cross and the things that He sees. And what we saw last week was first of all, He viewed Himself on the cross. He views Himself. The second thing that we see is that Jesus viewed... People from the cross. Now, I know you might say that's pretty obvious. Jesus viewed people from the cross. He did. He, in fact, He viewed he, he viewed three types of people from the cross. Three types of people from the cross. In fact, if you go back to Matthew chapter 27, remember what Jesus said from the cross? And it's not just recorded in Matthew, it's recorded in the other accounts as well. He says, Father. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's be clear that he was not thinking about the demons or Satan. They knew exactly what they were doing. It was the hour of the power of the darkness. But Jesus views people, What? What types of people does Jesus view from the cross? First of all, he views the redeemed. There at the cross is his own mother who certainly believed in him, and he is on the cross, dying, purchasing her salvation at that particular moment in time. She, with everything in her, believed in him. It was there on the cross that Jesus would look down and he would look at his disciple whom Jesus loved, the one that was the closest to him. Yes, he had the twelve. One was the devil. He had the the inner circle of the twelve, Peter, James, and John, that had unique privileges and opportunities to do ministry with him at different places, whether it was up in the uh, uh, upper room where Jesus held Peter's mother-in-law, whether it was on the Mount of Transfiguration, whether it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John were the inner circle that kind of went in and knew everything that was happening and going on and had a unique relationship with Christ. And out of those three stood one, John who is the disciple described as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved? Not that he didn't love the others, but there was a unique and special relationship that Jesus had with John. And there at the cross, when he is on the cross, he is looking down and sees his mother. Now, Jesus had other half brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. James would be one of them who would not be a believer at this time who would later become a believer. But here, he could have entrusted his mother to the care of his physical family, but instead he looks down and sees John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he says, John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. In other words, Jesus from the cross, in don't miss this, Jesus from the cross entrusts the care of his own mother, not to his half-brothers and sisters, and not to His physical families, those that would be blood relation to Him, but to His church family, to His spiritual brother. Let that sink in. Because the truth of the matter is, is some of you will spend the, he- in the eternity in heaven with your church family, brothers and sisters in Christ, and your own physical family. Perhaps even your children, your grandchildren, or maybe even your parents will not be there. I think it shows the significance of your church family. And I think it shows the significance of the bond that we have through the relationship of Christ. That is, that's why I don't, listen, that's one of many reasons I don't understand a flippant attitude towards the gathering of the body of Christ. I don't understand drifting in and out of the family of God, I don't understand low commitment. I don't understand those things. If you truly understand what the body of Christ is here upon this earth and the relationships that we have, I don't understand how anyone can flippantly look at the church with such familiarity that they don't give a rip whether they go or not. Whether they participate, whether they serve together whether they engage in mission whether they right do all the things that the church family does i don 't understand it. The only thing I conclude are one of two things you 're lost and don 't know what it means to be part of the body of Christ or you 're saved and have never been discipled to understand the importance of the gathered church gathering together You don't understand. And it's a discipleship matter. Because once you understand that you're a part of the body of Christ, when the body gathers, you're present. Unless you're providentially hindered. He would see the redeemed. He would also see from the cross, relating to people, He would see... Those who would reject him. Did you notice what the Bible says? Look at what it says. You can, you can even, if you would, just so we can see it all together. Go to Luke's account of the crucifixion, Luke chapter twenty-two. In Luke's account of the of the, of the crucifixion, we see that there are those who are there at, that Jesus certainly would see at the cross, who would reject him. For example, verse Luke 22 or excuse me Luke 23 verse 35, the Bible says and even the rulers were sneering at him and saying, he saved others, let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. These would be the religious leaders, the ones who should have known and should have understand. And they are there at the foot of the cross mocking him, rejecting the one who is dying that they might live. And they reject him. The soldiers, verse 36 says, the soldiers mocked him, coming to him, offering sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They were mocking him. They were scoffing at him. One of the, verse 39, one of the criminals who hanged there was hurling abuse at him and saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And they're hanging on the cross and providing the only possibility of salvation that they would have. They are there at the greatest moment of light that they would have in the presence of Christ rejecting Him even as He is in the midst of dying to provide their pardon if they would only repent and believe. The fact of the matter is is they would never see greater light than what they saw through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ And even though some would say, but Jesus, if you would just send one from the dead to come back, surely they would believe. They saw the greatest light die in front of them and three days later be raised. There will never be greater light than what they experienced and saw on that day. And yet they rejected him. In fact they would see Him again. The book of Revelation says that one day they will stand before Him. And the Bible says in the book of Philippians that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is the Christ, the Son of God. And those who rejected Him, including the ones that Jesus Himself viewed from the cross, would be separated from Him forever in a place called... Hell. But there's another group of people here that he would see. And the other group of people that he would see would be those who would soon be redeemed. When he was there, they're not in the category of Mary who are already believing they 're in the other category who have rejected Christ, rejected who he is, and many of them are mocking, but many are observing. I want you to see this I want you to see this uh, if you would look look with me in Acts chapter six verse seven. Remember that it says in, in luke twenty three thirty five that even the rulers, the religious leaders were sneering at him and saying, "He saved others, let him save himself, some who watched Jesus on that day die for their sins would come to believe that he is the Christ the son of God. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 says the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests, look at this, were becoming obedient to the faith. Why? In such an early stage. This is within days, weeks of Christ's crucifixion. Because they would see him and they saw what happened. They watched his martyrdom. They watched him lay down his life for their behalf. And when they saw how he died, they knew that they were dead in their trespasses and sins and would ultimately come to faith in Christ and be saved. Listen to me and listen to me carefully. Religious People must be saved religious people there are more religious people going to hell than you can imagine because religion will not get you into heaven religion will not purchase your pardon religion will not take you there and I don't care what your religion is I don't care how good you think you are The only way that you can get there is through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. You can be religious. Listen, there are millions and millions. We laid Billy Graham to rest this week, right? All of us watched it on TV. And Billy Graham himself would say that millions and millions of people will go to hell from a church chair. He'd probably say pew. We'd say chair. (laughs) And now I guess we can say cinematic chair, right? Whatever. <laughs> recliner. Either way, whatever it is, it don't matter what you're sitting in. You can still get the hell from there. Apart from a saving relationship in Christ. Oh, you've got to see this. you got to see this. Go back to Luke. Luke 23 again. Luke 23. I told you about the criminals. You know this both criminals were there he was hung between two criminals they're hurling insults at him but at some point in time in this one of those criminals begins to see perhaps his transformation taking place they begin to see perhaps how he is dying in their midst how could he be on the cross caring for his mother how could he not be hurling insults how could he say father forgive them for they know not what they do and they're on the cross one Of those thieves began to be enlightened, and his eyes were opened. And he began to consider and see what he was doing. And Luke 23, verse 40 says, But the other one answered, rebuke him, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for what we are receiving, what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And there, dying on the cross, he looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you today, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus would view those who would soon be redeemed on the cross. And when all had taken place and Jesus had laid down his life on the cross, even one of the centurions who was there, who witnessed and observed and participated in the same thing, verse 47 says, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God and saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Truly, this man is the Son of God. And you can read about it here in Luke 23, 47, Mark chapter 15, verse 39, Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. Three gospels account detail this man's transformation. All of these people would be present and there and Jesus would view them and they would view Him from the cross. But so much like in our studies, behind the physical realities of what was taking place would be the spiritual realities that if God did not reveal them in His Word we would have no way of knowing that they were taking place. For example, the people there that day, they would not know that God had said, Luke twenty-two fifty-three, for this is the hour of the power of the darkness they would not look around and visibly see Satan and the demons there at the cross. That's a spiritual reality that we know took place because God's Word says it takes place. But if God's Word didn't tell us visibly, we wouldn't see that. Does that make sense? That's what I mean by spiritual realities. The spiritual realities of who Jesus would see from the cross would certainly be His enemies, would certainly be Satan, and certainly would be demons. Now, demons have no ability to uh, fashion a body for themselves. They always have to, scripturally speaking, they always have to possess a body or have a vessel. They can't manifest uh, a a physical presence. So no one would see the demons that were there of the cross. But surely they were there. It was the hour of the power of darkness. There would be nothing of any more significance there. And yes, they would expose themselves to, him because everywhere Jesus went that there were demons present. He didn't have to call them out. They exposed themselves and called him out. Yeah. You're not going to believe this, but the devil goes to church. <laughs> Jesus was in the synagogue. He just went in to worship. Luke chapter 4 says he went in, and I'm paraphrasing for the sake of time. You can read it. Luke chapter 4. Verse 31, Jesus is sitting there. He's just going to church. And what happens is in Luke chapter 4, verse 31, this man, you're right, nobody knew this man was demon possessed. I mean, you know, you didn't sit there and say, hey, honey, where are you going? Let me go check on the demon possessed man over here and see how his week was. It wasn't like that uh, at all. He, they probably had no clue that this man was demon-possessed. He was there. He was in his right mind. In Luke chapter 4, the Bible says this, And he came to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In Luke 4, 33, In the synagogue there was a man possessed by the Spirit and an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Let us along what business do we have with each other Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us I know who you are the holy one of God Jesus didn't identify this man Jesus didn't call this man out listen darkness in the presence of holiness has to reveal itself here's here's how it happens in the church The devil gets a hold of you, right? Or the demons, darkness. And what happens is, is you get under conviction. You're sitting in the presence of God's people. You're singing great songs. And everything within you is just bursting with anger and darkness. And that evil just has to spew out of your mouth. It comes out in some way. Saying you're demon-possessed, or I'm just saying that in the presence of holiness, in the presence of light, darkness always exposes itself. In fact, you better be careful. You better be careful with right, our actions, our attitudes, and the things that we display and that we do to make sure we understand where those influences are coming from because they're not always of the Holy Spirit of God. Darkness always has to expose itself in the light. And this man did. And what does Jesus say? Jesus tried to get him to be quiet. Look at what it says. He says, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet. Now, how about this? How about the power of Jesus in his weakness? Be quiet. Come out of him. And he did. Here at the cross, are you telling me that those demons would be present and not expose themselves? It's the hour of the power of the darkness. And though throughout Jesus' entire earthly ministry, they were afraid of him, they were scared of him, because it was the hour of the power of darkness, they would pounce and unleash and unload everything they possibly could, directed by Satan himself, who, by the way, in Scripture, never, ever, ever showed fear. In fact, Satan apparently, according to the Word of God actually believed that he was going to win this battle. There's never any fear of Jesus. There's never any concern of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. There's always the idea that he's going to keep on and keep on and he's going to win this thing. And he thought, Satan thought, he was going to win on that day and the hour of the power of the darkness or he would have never brought Jesus there. Why do I say all that? Because there on the mist, when Jesus was dying on the cross... There we see Him in the physical realities and there we see the things that He sees and the things that He does. And now we're exposed to these things that we haven't seen before, the spiritual realities of their presence there. And unbeknownst to them on that day and unbeknownst to them at that time and unbeknownst to all the physical people that were there on that day, Jesus was doing something even greater. Let me show it to you, Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, that's after Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 1 deals with the identity of Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 deals with the reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. There's so much here. I wish I had time to unpack all of this. Basically, what we see is this. Just for the sake of time, you notice that verse 12 is dealing with the crucifixion of Christ. The the circumstance of having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Notice verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions... And uncircumcised in your flesh Jesus made you alive together with him now look at this having forgiven us all of our sins if you mark your Bibles mark the word all having forgiven us of all of our sins past present and future Having forgiven us of all of our transgressions, notice verse fourteen. having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of the degrees decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Now, now, how did he do that? Now, think about this: all of the sin, all of the sin in a believer's life, a person who has repented, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We had a sin debt, a certificate held against us. It only requires one for us to spend all of eternity in hell paying for that sin. Imagine the countless numbers of sin that we committed our entire life. And it is a record of debt that is held against us so that when an unbeliever stands before God, apart from their name being in the Lamb's book of life and forgiven and blotted out. Listen, they're going to give an account for their unrighteous deeds and their sin. They will give an account. There is a certificate. A certificate. Notice what it says. Notice what it says. He He's canceled the certificate of debt when did he cancel the certificate of debt I've told you before that Jesus was nailed to the cross and they would see him a placard was nailed to the cross here's Jesus King of the Jews they would see that but what they would not see and we would not know if the Bible didn't tell us is that the certificate of our sin debt was nailed on the cross that day look at what it says look at what it says he has the, the, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. What did he do with it? Nailed it to the cross. He took your sin and my sin, and right, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And when did that happen? There on the cross. But don't miss the next verse. Look at what else happened on the cross. Unbeknownst to anyone, who was there weeping over his death and unbeknownst to anyone there mocking and hurling insults at them, he, Colossians 2.15 says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them. Now look at this having triumphed over them through him. In other words, you know what brought the first element of the cup, which was the hour of the power of darkness to an end, is not that they got tired and quit, not that they gave up, not that they said it is pointless, not at all. He, while He was dying on the cross, in His weakness, disarmed them. Notice that word disarmed is in the past tense. It's in the past tense. It is done. Their presence is still here, and they are still powerful but in terms of the work of Christ on the cross, they have been disarmed. Now, folks, that's something to shout about right there. Mm-hmm. And then we see the angels. You can look and out for the sake of time, 2 Kings chapter 6, you can turn there in a small, insignificant battle of Dothan. Elisha's the prophet. The people are about to get whooped. Y'all know that term? They are about to get whooped, and the people are fearful. And they're saying, what are we, look at all these people, look at all these enemies that are coming against us. And Elisha prays that their eyes would be open. And when their eyes are open, there's an innumerable number of angels all around them. You see, the people physically couldn't see them, but just because they couldn't see them doesn't mean they weren't there. Angels have the ability, at God's command, to reveal themselves to show their presence. You ever thought about this? What the Bible says to the sh- to the shepherds in the field at night? It says a, a heavenly host of angels. It doesn't say came. It doesn't say traveled from heaven to be there. What does it say? Appeared. Appeared. If all of this innumerable number of angels. Would be present at this insignificant battle in Dothan in Second Kings chapter six. I promise you, they were there on, at that day when Christ was nailed to the cross. First Peter, well, First Timothy, chapter three, verse 16, talks about it. It's a, it's in the common confession of the church. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in his flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels. First Peter chapter one verse twelve says this. First Peter one twelve says this. It says this. It says that. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves about the prophets, but you, in, in announcing the salvation that was to come. And First Peter chapter one verse twelve says things in which the angels long to look. The angels who never receive grace are amazed at the grace that comes to you and I. Angels who have never sinned never receive grace but you and I always receive grace and they are amazed at the salvation that comes to us and they stood there watching waiting ready to help. Jesus said if I could call, call 72,000 angels and they would come. They were there at a moment's notice. Now, now they were disciplined and they were reserved and they held their place unlike like Peter who cut off Malchus's ear had to be put back on the angel stood at bay and watched the whole thing takes place the Bible says in the book of Revelation that there was silence in heaven I would if I was a betting man I would say that there was silence on that day as Christ died on the cross for our sin watching him certainly He would have seen the good angels. And one other thing that He would see, and I'm just going to throw this out there, is there from the cross, not only would He see the people that are there, the redeemed, those who would ultimately reject Him, and those who were lost who would be saved, and not only would He see the, the Satan himself and the demons in the darkness, Jesus would also see God, the Father, begin to move and to make his way to the cross. I know God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once. But the Bible also says in the book of Ezekiel chapter 1 that God moved and comes near. He moves majestically. He moves methodically. And he moves as he wills. And in the midst of all of this happening and taking place to Jesus, and the demons of darkness being disarmed, the Father begins to move and begins to make his way. To the cross and he comes closer than the human people that were there and he comes closer than Satan and the demons that were there and makes his presence at the cross known and we're going to begin to understand that more next week next week we don't have time to get there today so what we've done is we've concluded the first element of the cup and now we're beginning to move to the second element that makes Christ's cup unique from any other cup. By the way, at this moment in time, when the, all of this happened and all of this took place, Jesus still looked like a man on the cross through the physical and through all that the devil and demons did, he was still recognizable as a man on the cross. And the ingredients, the elements, the aspects of his cup, they grow and magnify increasingly in nature and the things that come. Don't you think for just a minute that he has already endured the worst part. He's only endured the first part and the other two. Pale, make this... They, they are so far beyond what we've already seen and what's taking place here. And we'll begin to look at that next week. I don't know where you are in your walk with God but I know that probably in this room are three people. Uh, Maybe not in this room because we know each other and we know each other's testimony and things along those lines. But probably in any given setting where the Word of God is preached and proclaimed and people have gathered together, there are those who are redeemed and they're confident that they are redeemed. And there are those who have rejected Those who have rejected, those who, oh, maybe they're religious, maybe they're going through the motion, maybe they're doing the thing that they're doing. But in reality, listen, the certificate of their debt is still held against them because they are not saved, they are not redeemed. And beloved, it's not just that you haven't made a decision for Christ, it's that you haven't been saved you haven't been born again. You haven't been regenerated. And the record of debt is still held against you. But may it be today that one who has rejected understands and sees even a portion of what Christ has done for you today on this cross. that You would not leave this place in the same condition as which you arrived but that you would be like the centurion who would say, Surely, this is the Son of God. Mm. For that you would say, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Or you'd be like the the priest who began to follow him and be saved. Beloved, my prayer is, is that none of us would leave here today. In any condition except redeemed and part of the family of God. And part of the family of God. We are going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to sing, It is well with my soul. And I want you to see this line in here. And this line says, My sin, not in part, but the whole... Colossians 2:15 has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It is well with my soul beloved. Is it well with your soul today?